Bushy, I break down the ability to buy a house and, and, and own a house into two. One is housing attainability, which is, which is the ability to save a deposit. And the other one is housing affordability, which is the ability to continue to maintain to pay the mortgage. Yes. Now, I'm contrary to most property academics, most many property commentators. If we just look at housing affordability, that is the ability to pay off a mortgage, it is actually easier today than it was, say, back in 1990. Welcome to the Get Invested podcast where we share great conversations with experts from all walks of life to uncover their secret know-how and where they invest their time, their skills and their money and the benefits that this has created. You see, the truth is that everyone invests. Every minute of every day, we're investing our time, our skills, our energy and our money in something. Some of us are investing consciously, some unconsciously, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad, sometimes for no impact. Get Invested will help you to start living by design, not by default. I'm going to help you to make it happen, not let it happen. You'll hear the top tips on how you can live with conscious intent so that you can live more, work less, and leave a living legacy by investing now. Listen to the show to discover the top tips on how to get started, make the most of your investment journey, and ultimately to be living your dream, not someone else's. More episodes can be found on iTunes, or at bushymartin.com.au forward slash get invested. Thanks for listening. And now, let's get invested. Hi, Freedom Fighters. Is housing unaffordable? Is it less affordable now than what it's been in the past? Is it getting worse? And why do I ask? Because with house prices already growing in good areas around the country, there's already mainstream media talk about housing becoming unaffordable again and calls for governments to step in and reintroduce measures that will put the handbrake on property demand and property prices like they tried to a few years ago. But is this justified? Well, in my view and the learned view of today's guest, the answer is no. Housing affordability has become a convenient political football where everyone seems to jump on the bandwagon and where everyone is an expert and everyone has the answer. From changing housing supply to changing lease terms, stamp duty, capital gains tax, lands tax, negative gearing, zoning, loan policy, you name it. But it's a dynamic, multifaceted issue where isolated, reactive and ill-conceived interventions for the few are likely to have unknown, unintended and far-reaching consequences for the many. At last count, approximately 55% of the wealth of Australian families is held in their home. And first-home buyers trying to get in on the property ladder represent approximately 15% of home buyers. So against this backdrop, the housing affordability debate appears to have the smell of the tail wagging the dog. Now, there's no question that home ownership and or property investment ownership can be the difference between a decent retirement and one where you need government assistance, given the historic performance of property values over time. So getting onto the property ladder is an important first step. But are we treating the symptoms rather than the cause 
And are we considering the right questions? So let me ask the question again. Do we really have a housing affordability issue? My response, in the style of my son, he'd say, yeah, nah. It's a question of affordability or is it accessibility? Because these are two very different things. Yes, I can see that in some areas we have a house purchase accessibility issue in isolated, highly sought-after locations. But no, this is not across the board. And in these locations, it's not an affordability crisis, but an access and expectation challenge. It just happens that these locations are also where all the decision makers and the media live, in Sydney and Melbourne. Now, we live in the best country in the world, and the best locations come at a price, because, understandably, everyone wants to live there. So the issue in these lifestyle meccas, particularly for first-home buyers, is the savings deposit hurdle. But even the, even the savings deposit dilemma is being reduced with some banks that our know-how breaking team deals with, offering home loans that only require 5% deposits, alongside a raft of first-home buyers' grants, you can access the super, the stamp duty waivers and concessions, and other deposit incentives like the current home builder grant that's still available. And depending on which state and region you're looking to secure a property, this can add up to in excess of $50,000 of deposit assistance, providing, of course, you can demonstrate 3 to 5% of the purchase price in genuine savings and or rental history outside of the grants. Now, as opposed to affordability, what I call accessibility is what today's guest refers to as attainability. So listen out for his great insights on this during our enlightening discussion today. And in relation to housing affordability, let's have a closer look at the facts rather than the fiction. And when I talk about affordability, I'm not talking about the ability to buy a property, but the ability to afford to service your home loan or pay the rent ongoing. Unfortunately, many commentators only compare the ratio of our incomes versus property prices over time. As, and this is supposed to be the measure of housing affordability, but in my view, This is way too simplistic, and it's missing the most and more appropriate ingredients that better identify the true underlying housing affordability position. And today's regular guest, the property professor, Peter Kalisos, has done some great work on this in his capacity as the chair of the Property Investors Investment Professionals of Australia, or PIPA. His work reveals that a more accurate indication of ongoing housing affordability is the percentage of your wages that goes towards your home loan repayments. Now, this includes assessment of your current income, the prevailing home loan interest rates at the time, and your access to credit and your borrowing capacity, which has actually been improving in recent times and is likely to improve significantly in coming months when lending laws are relaxed post 1st of March 2021. Now, in recent times, there's been many claims that housing is unaffordable and becoming increasingly less affordable. While this might appear the case when you just look at the rise in property values against the rise in total volumes over t- at total incomes over time, let's see how it shapes up using Peter's more accurate affordability assessment based on the proportion of your income that you use to make home loan repayments. Now using these measures, Peter has compared relative 
housing affordability since 1990, and the results are very revealing. Based on the current average wage of $68,000 a year, and an average home loan size of $500,000, using a standard variable home rate of 3.5%, which is actually very conservative and a lot higher than the actual rates in the high 1% and low 2% that you can easily achieve via our know-how finance breaking team. The percentage of your wages that go to loan repayments has the following history of trajectory. Way back in 1990, families were devoting 48.1% of their income to home loan repayments. That's nearly half of their income. By 2012, it dropped slightly to 47.5%. In 2018, it was down to 40.9%. And last year, in 2020, it was down to 39.7%. This indicates that in the last 30 years, housing affordability has actually improved significantly in that you're currently devoting nearly 10% less of your income to home loan repayments. So is housing becoming less affordable and do we have a housing affordability crisis? Not according to the property professor's research. But in my humble opinion, all of this affordability debate belies our real underlying issue, our growing entitled expectations. In our instant iPhone everything world, we're constantly bombarded with misleading images of everyone living the dream and enjoying the biggest, the best, the latest and the greatest. From gadgets to games, clothes to cars and holidays, everything is at our fingertips. We expect and are used to getting everything right now. Just buy now with no money down and pay later. Again, Today's guest, Peter Kalisos, wrote a great article published by News Corp a few years ago that illustrates our current expectations and spending habits in relation to the housing affordability debate, where he describes a typical dinner-time discussion between a father and his daughter. And I'm going to repeat it here. The daughter starts, What's for dinner, Dad? And Dad replies, Yeah, roast lamb and veggies. How was, how was your day today? And the daughter says, we went to some house inspections. And Dad says, Ah, did you find anything you liked? The daughter says, Yes, but housing is so expensive and unaffordable. And Dad says, Hang on. Being expensive and unaffordable are two very different things. I agree that housing is expensive. It costs a lot of money to buy. But I don't agree that it's unaffordable. And the daughter says, What? Are you crazy? And Dad says, Just listen for a minute. When your mum and I bought our first house 30 years ago, I was on a beginner's salary of just $12,000. And the daughter says, what? How could you live off that? And Dad says, well, things were cheaper back then. When we bought our first house, the medium house price in Adelaide was only $60,000. The daughter says, 60000 is impossible, Dad, even for way back then. And Dad says, believe me, it was possible. However... Interest rates were 17.5%. It was a high interest rate, and on top of that, if you wanted to borrow money, you needed a 25% deposit. And the daughter says, But today interest rates are only 4.5%. And sideline here, remembering that this is five years ago, and average home loan rates are now down in the high ones to low 2%. And 
And Dad says, correct. With interest rates at 4.5%, housing is not as unaffordable as you might think. Today, a beginner, beginner's teacher's salary, like I was on, is now 50000 and the medium house price in Adelaide is now 400000 and you can buy a house with a 5% deposit. The daughter says, so what's your point? Well, Dad says, 30 years ago, the deposit was equivalent of 15 months' salary. And the daughter says, well, how did you work that out? Dad says, well, 25% of the 60000 is 15000 I earned $12,000 over 12 months, so 15000 was 15 months' salary. Today, I only need a 5% deposit for a $400,000 house, which equals 20000 This is the equivalent of only about five months of today's salary. The daughter goes, yeah, go on. And Dad says, well, 30 years ago, the annual interest rate on the mortgage repayment equated to $7,875, or 17.5% of 45000 which was the equivalent of about eight months' salary back then. Today, the annual interest rate payment for a mortgage is $17,000, which is about four months' salary. And the daughter goes, Dad, I can see your point, but there's just way too much math going on here. In 30 words or less, can you please tell me why housing is not unaffordable today? And Dad says, yeah, easily. 30 years ago, you needed 15 months' salary for the deposit and the annual interest was 8 months' salary. Today, you only need 5 months' salary for the deposit and the annual interest is 4 months' salary. In other words, today you need less of your income to pay for housing. And the daughter says, hmm, well, why does it seem so hard for me and my friends to buy a house? Dad says, you need to save some money. The daughter says, but I do, Dad. Dad says, yeah, to go overseas and out with your friends. The daughter says, come on, Dad, I've got some money in the bank. Dad says, I'm sure you have. Anyway, enough of that. Let's have some dessert. The daughter says, oh, I can't stay for dessert. Dad says, why? Where are you off to? The daughter says, I'm going out with my friends because we're planning our next trip to Bali. And Dad Riley replies, you don't say. Now I'll let you work out who the dad in this story really is. Now, it's important for me to stress at this point that in my opinion, our growing expectations is not an age thing, but an attitude thing. As a result of our instant iPhone means I own addiction, our patience, persistence and saving muscles have withered away from lack of use. But anything worth having comes at a cost, either a small cost now or a much larger cost later. As Oprah, Oprah has been famous for saying, you can have it all, just not all at once. So do we expect it, or do we have to earn it? We've all created a world where we believe we can do anything and have everything, but some of us have forgotten to learn the most important part, if we've worked for it. It's the difference between expecting it and earning it. How does an Olympic athlete win a gold medal? Yes, they start by expecting it. But they earn it through personal sacrifice, relentless dedication and discipline. There's no escaping it. We all have to do the time and do the work. 
and we only really value and respect things that we've worked for. This was the best lesson my good father Bushy Senior ever taught me. When I was nearly finished high school, when all my mates were getting cars from their parents, and I desperately wanted my first car, Dad said to me, Son, you can have any car you want, just as soon as you've earned enough and saved enough to pay for it yourself. Everything worthwhile comes at a price. And this means that it's what I call a matter of lifestyle versus loan style. So housing affordability comes down to a question of lifestyle versus loan style. If you want the dream home and the dream location now, we need to compromise on lifestyle. If you want the Taj Mahal immediately, you may have to get used to living on baked beans, two middle noodles and the odd can of dog food as you sit in front of the telly watching endless reruns of Friends because that's all the lifestyle you'll be able to afford. Or you can choose to enjoy a better lifestyle now by securing a lesser starter home further away. But there's also another issue at play here. Along with the instant everything now is the common perception that living the dream means owning the best house in the best suburb. But what if we separate access from ownership? Many first-home buyers are starting to realise the benefits of renting in the area of choice at a fraction of the mortgage cost to enjoy lifestyle, while owning investment rental property in upcoming areas that they can afford. And by doing that, they have the best of both worlds. Rentfesters access lifestyle while owning assets. This is exactly how my wife Sonia and I managed to get ahead when we started again with absolutely nothing to our names 25 years ago. We rented a small townhouse close to Adelaide City in our work and we used our limited savings and capacity to invest in a three-bedroom, one-bathroom home with a double garage in what was, at the time, the coastal retirement village of Uldinga Beach, which was over an hour south of Adelaide at the time and we paid the princely sum of $84,000 for it. Interestingly, we still own that rental property, which was recently valued at over half a million dollars. And rentfesting isn't just a housing beginner strategy, it's also a great sunset strategy for those of you approaching your golden years, and one that Sonia and I intend to adopt. We've set ourselves up so that our passive income portfolio across property, shares and business will fund our lifestyle and free us up so that we can travel around the world enjoying awesome locations for two to three months at a time, living very cheaply in a combination of rentals, Airbnbs, along with house-sitting, house-minding and house-swapping escapes. This is in contrast to many retirees who've got all of their wealth tied up in their home, but very little money to survive on. They're asset-rich, but they're cash-poor. Sadly, Many hard-working Aussie couples have blindly and unquestionably followed the old and dangerous myth, like the Pied Piper, Pied Piper leading the entranced mice plague over the cliff to drown, of just paying off the home loan and putting their money into super. I think this is the biggest reason that according to the latest ABS stats, over 73% of retirees over the age of 65 are trying to survive on an average of just $15,300 a year is only $295 a week. This is why I'm on a mission 
to make sure that this isn't going to be you by helping you to live by design and to get invested. But I digress. You just need to access lifestyle while investing in income-producing assets. You don't try to combine them. You simply separate where you live and rent from where you buy and invest. Now, let's close this affordability discussion with another question. Should we be looking to change everything to cater for the politically correct squeaky wheel minority? First home buyers represent one in seven property purchases. So should we be turning housing policy on its head to cater for the few by meddling with a market that could potentially have significant impacts on the many? Or should the few learn to suck it up, lower their short-term expectations, live within their means and start saving and become rentfesters or learn to live with a bit less for a little while so they can get started? For those with the courage, the discipline, patience and persistence, it will be one of their greatest life lessons. And these are the very qualities that perfectly describe today's returning guest, the property professor, Peter Kalisos. Peter is fast becoming one of our regular property commentators here on Get Invested. And if you want to hear his full story and his back story, check out episode 41. To to refresh your memories on his impressive property credentials, Peter is currently the program director and lecturer for the Master of Property degree at the University of Adelaide. And he's been teaching in real estate and property investment for over 20 years. He's also the chair of the Property Investors Investment Professionals of Australia, or PIPA, of which I'm also a proud member and a strong supporter of their mission of representing qualified independent property professionals and getting rid of the white-shoe spruikers in the property game. And in walking his own talk, Peter personally develops and invests in property and he currently owns several properties himself. Peter researches property markets around the nation, looking for the best suburbs to invest in in each capital city. In 2008, he published his first book, The Property Professor's Top Australian Suburbs. In 2013, he co-authored his second book, Property vs Shares. And his third book is currently in the making. And we chat about what it's about during today's episode, so make sure you keep an ear out for that. He also appears weekly on his podcast, The Property Planner, Buyer and Professor. Peter has the rare ability to combine the theory of property investment with the practicalities to teach you how to make money from investing in property, whether you're buying, selling, renting, renovating or developing property. And given the rare window of opportunity that we're currently experiencing in property in Australia at the moment, today's timely and engaging discussion answers all of your key questions, including what we've learned from COVID and what we should be doing about it, how has it affected our thinking and actions and how will this impact on how we live and where we live moving forward and how will this affect property values and markets long term. We get his predictions on what will happen in property in 2021 and beyond, along with his predictions on regional activity and capital city forecasts in terms of who will come out on top and why. He covers what are the key risks to our economy and property that we need to be aware of, what are the biggest mistakes that people make around property and how can you avoid them, what impact will the proposed changes to lending law legislation that are likely to be instituted in March have on property, and is the building industry likely to continue to take off post-home builder and the other stimulus initiatives. We look at what's the outlook for apartments and commercial property, 
and he discusses what are the details of the changes and options for stamp duty in New South Wales, Victoria and elsewhere, and what this will mean in, for property in the short, medium and long term. And, as already alluded to, what are his current thoughts on housing affordability? Peter often runs very hands-on property development courses in Adelaide. If you're interested in joining him and or getting a copy of his upcoming book, and he's about to open his own buyer's agency in Adelaide, so if you're interested in any of this, feel free to check him out further on his LinkedIn profile where you can get all of his contact details. In the meantime, enjoy this lively, engaging and always entertaining discussion with Peter Kalisos. Hi Freedom Fighters. Now, we're in the midst of a rare window of opportunity where it's quite uncommon for all the property planets to align. So it's very timely and quite opportune to chat again with one of Australia's preeminent experts on all things property and a great fellow Adelaidean, the property professor Peter Kalisos. So great to have you back on the show. So welcome and let's get invested again, Peter. How are you, Bushy? I'm very good, mate. I'm very good. Uh, very pleased to be um, enjoying our wonderful state. And uh, yeah. the best kept secret in the country, I believe, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Weather's pretty good. We dealt with COVID-19 very, very well. And from a property perspective, as you say, the planets are aligning. They are. So I'm uh, quite keen to uh, dig into that in quite some detail today with you, uh, just so that we can really open the eyes and the ears of the listeners to the opportunity that uh, we're on the cusp of enjoying but uh, for those that that haven't listened to the past episode and and who have been living under a rock and don't know who you are mate can I get you to give us a very brief refresher on who you are what you do and why you do what you do yeah sure so work-wise I'm the uh, program director for the master of property at the University of Adelaide Uh, I've been teaching in property and or investment for about 25 years. I've written a couple of books, one called Top Australian Suburbs, the other one called Property Versus Shares, and there's a third one coming out about mid-year, all based on small-scale residential property development. Uh, Four kids, lovely wife, enjoy bike riding, going to the gym, love being outdoors, that's about me in a nutshell, I think, Bushing. That sounds pretty good, mate. Uh, and I, my ears pricked up with a third book, Peter, so uh, we'll make sure that um, uh, when the time's right, uh, I'll let the listeners know where they can get their hands on, on a copy, mate. So looking forward to that. Thanks, mate. Greatly appreciate it. Awesome. Now, uh, I guess where I'd like to go straight into, because ultimately what everyone's trying to do, uh, whatever their endeavour is, to achieve a level of sustainable success. And you have someone who has got irons in a number of fires. What, what, how do you define sustainable success and how are you going about achieving it, mate? So for me, sustainable success is the opportunity to, if we're looking at money, forgetting about the personal side, but if we're just looking at finances, it's just the ability to have a continual stream of income. And it might vary from time to time, especially if you have residential property or if you've got, you know, shares and you're expecting dividends, or through maybe property development or property uh, renovation. So if you've got a formula that you can repeat, um, I think that's a great first step to sustainable 
financial success. Yeah, so very well summed up there, mate. And I, and I, th- I think the two key words uh, there that you've mentioned are one, a formula, so that y- you're following rules that you know that are going to work and have been proven, and it's therefore repeatable, so you can continue to keep doing it. So, um, uh, some very wise words there, mate. How are you going about achieving all of that? Yeah, look, I've I've been interested in real estate probably since I was born because Dad was a real estate agent. Actually, he wasn't a real estate agent when I was born. I think he became one when I was about 10 years old. But anyway, yeah. I've been interested in real estate for a long time. So even, even without wanting to or realising, a lot of that property knowledge soaked in through the process of osmosis. Um, but that, you know, that's... That's all well and good, but you're only getting one person's perspective. Uh, I've got a, a three postgraduate degrees all related to property and town planning. So I think I have I have enough knowledge. So I've got the theory. Yeah. I put the theory into practice myself and also help uh, other people do it. But to be able to do that, you need to have the willpower. It's one thing to know a lot, but it's another thing to have to have the risk appetite to put your money on the table to either you know do something in property or shares or some other investment, um, I think that's important. Knowledge and the ability to put stuff into action. Very good point there, mate. There's uh, you and I have probably rubbed shoulders with a lot of people who uh, know the ins and outs of everything in property but have never actually uh, turned a sod or, or got a key in their hands for a property. So uh, it, it is taking risk and there's always going to be risks. Uh, the bigger the risk, uh, often the better reward if it's, it's set up the right way. But it's actually having that, that self-discipline willpower that you're speaking about uh, to actually take the action. And I guess, what I, I don't know about your thoughts on this, but uh, I often see would-be investors who are looking for the perfect deal. So everything has to be in alignment. And, and you know better than I, those don't exist. No. Uh, it's a matter of getting most of them in, in line and accepting that uh, you're better off getting something going and let, letting time do a lot of the heavy lifting for you rather than waiting forever and never actually getting off the starting line. What's what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, mate, it's a bit like waiting for the perfect partner. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I know I'm married to a beautiful woman and, I, and I'm sure you are too, but, you know, yep. we all have our faults, you know, and, and you're right with property. Like, I have yet to find the perfect property because the one thing that's unique about property is it's just that, it's unique. There is no one property exactly the same as any other if even if we're looking at a group of apartments that look identical, if we look at their location, especially in 3D, they are not in the same location. Some have different perspectives, as in they face different ways. They might be on different levels. So, yeah, please don't waste your time looking for the absolutely perfect investment. Get yourself educated and then get yourself invested. Yeah, great and very wise words there, mate. And it's the you know, I often uh, uh, smile quietly about this when when the press likes to refer to it as the property market because they they talk to them as if properties are uh, you know all, all the same. Uh, and you, you make the perfect comment if you compare the share market with the property market, where the share market is a is a, effectively a perfect market because everyone's operating on the same information at exactly the same time. Mm-hmm. 
every property in every street and every suburb and every location is different from every other property. So, uh, and that, that creates its best opportunity because... That's right. Is, and, the, yeah. and the other aspect, Bushy, that provides us with an opportunity is unlike the share market where, in theory, every player is an investor and they're just worried about the money, in property, three-quarters of people are buying that property as a home. So they're not really interested in the uh, investment numbers. So there are opportunities for investors to understand what an owner-occupier is looking for and to be and to then capitalise on that. Totally. Uh, it's, it, I often say investors just need to slipstream on the emotion of the home buyers. Correct. And Because uh, yeah. we, we, a lot of them will pay a lot more money for something that you and I wouldn't, but because they have to have it, uh, then that can drive values, and if we're aware of that, and then we can mimic that uh, and show. Yeah, you know, it, simple things that that don't cost a lot of money. For example, like a double garage can add so much value to a property. Whereas if you just look at the numbers, you think, oh well, single garage to double garage only cost me an extra two thousand bucks, but it can add an extra twenty or thirty thousand. So, from an investment point of view, it may, may not sound logical. But again, most property, 30, 75% of property is generally bought on emotion as a home. So Pete, that's one of the big differences between the stock market and the property market is who the players are. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. 100% agree. Now, let's jump into uh, what's happening in the, in the marketplace at the moment, because let's face it, we've... Uh, uh, the whole world has experienced a pretty interesting year last year with uh, the um, contagion. But with with all uh, of those sort of situations, there's always some great opportunities and, and possibilities that flow out of that. would love to get your initial thoughts on what have we learned and, and uh, from what happened last year and what should we be doing about it if we're interested in property? Right, so... What I, I did here is a number of property developers land back during that time, so they obviously had a lot of guts. You know, a lot, a lot of us were were panicking as to what was going to happen because even though we've had recessions before, we'd never experienced a pandemic and with many people locked down. Yeah. Um, and so, and it was mainly the more experienced developers, they could see that, yes, we were going to come out the other side. So if they could have the opportunity to buy something relatively cheap because somebody might have panicked and wanted to sell quickly and cash out. Um, so they put themselves in a very good position because straight after that, we had the government announce Home Builder. Yeah. So, uh, and what Home Builder has created is a shortage of land. You know, you try and find a block of land is near impossible because everybody is climbing over themselves to buy that or to sign up for the land. Originally, it was before the 31st of December because yep. that was the the greatest uh, incentive. Yep. Uh, but now it, uh, it's to the 31st of March. Yeah. So developers did uh, very well so far as that is concerned. Very surprisingly bushy, and this surprised me, uh, landlords also did very well. I was, I was uh, a little bit worried at the beginning because... I know international students are a large part of the rental market. Yeah. And so we weren't going to get any extra international students coming. So I thought, well, there's going to be less, a little bit less demand. And with travel virtually stopped, 
I thought, well, all of those people that have Airbnbs, they're going to put them onto the rental market. So we've got increased supply, decreased demand. Well, rents only have one way to go, and that's down. Mm. But it is just phenomenal. I, I'm not sure how your investment properties are going, Bushy, but the like every time one's come up for renewal, we are getting a significant increase in rent yep. because it's not so much that there is a huge demand and it's more that there is a limited supply. So the air, the holiday stuff is virtually back to normal. But what's happening, Bushy, is typically out of 10 houses, seven, are, seven and a half, let's call it seven, are owner-occupied and three are rentals. Yep. So out of those 10, though, they're all being bought by owner-occupiers, in particular first-home buyers. Yep. So there's three less rental properties. You multiply that by 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, and that's a significant dip into the rental supply. So what we're seeing here is we might have the same amount of people looking for in, uh, rental properties, but there's just a lot less rental properties to pick from. Yeah. So there's only one way for rents to go, and that's up. Yeah, spot on. And that's exactly what we've experienced with ours too, by the way. So uh, it's interesting, uh, and this is – I continuously make this point – but the difference between what's actually happening on the ground and what likes to give, be reported in the press, unfortunately, are generally two different things. Yeah. And the, yeah. I mean, the, the sort of fear mongering that, that uh, they've sort of switched in from fear to greed now in terms of they're now talking about it uh, getting out of control. So they've gone from one extreme to the other. But uh, it, it's really important to get your hands dirty with what's actually happening on the ground, both in terms of the, the rental demand and similarly in terms of the, uh, the purchase demand. Uh, anecdotally, uh, we're seeing exactly the same thing happen in relation yeah, to property. Yeah, shortage of supply. Very, exactly. And, and that's the old, you know, the, the old uh, 101 economics. It's, it's all about <laughs> demand and supply. That's but, right. Price is a function of demand and supply. It's pretty simple. It is pretty simple. But uh, so are there any other lessons that, that come out of that in terms of uh, how we live and how and where we're likely to live moving forward that you're seeing that are going to be sustainable trends? Yeah. So uh, soon after COVID-19, our regional markets experienced a huge demand for rental properties because as soon as the boss said, well, you know, you can work from home, well, home doesn't have to be near work anymore. So in places like Brisbane, huge demand for rental properties on the Sunshine Coast, uh, in Melbourne, huge demand for properties on the surf coast or the Mornington Peninsula. Um, now, you, you put you used a very good word there, sustainable. Yes. So let's say these people moved out in April, May last year, and let's say they signed 12-month leases. Yep. It'll be interesting to see if this April and May, if they renew those leases or whether they come back to the city because... You know, admittedly, working from home was a novelty, nice little novelty. Yeah. But even for me, Bushy, and I, I just wanted to get out of the house. I wanted, I wanted to talk to people, talk with my colleagues here at uni, talk to the students, not just on Zoom, but actually, you know, face-to-face. -face. Yeah. So I actually enjoy being out and about, the ability to walk from, from the uni and go down and, and get a coffee or go for a walk around the river or whatever it might be. So... I think you ask me what do I th whether it's sustainable or not. Mm. I, I would prefer to answer that maybe mid-year yeah. to see what happens with the rentals because to shift your place of rent is not that hard. No. Right? But to, to sell up and shift out, 
that's a very different story. And I haven't seen a lot of people moving out and shifting permanently to the regional areas, certainly not as many as as renters. But I think one thing that will change, Bushy, is more likely than not, people are going to have at least one, if not two, dedicated studies in their house because working from home is going to be a long-term trend that stays with us. Yeah. And so far as commercial property is concerned, co-working spaces are going to become very, very popular. These are a little bit like serviced offices where you might have lots of different company using many different offices within the one building, but they might share a, a boardroom and the photocopier and the kitchen facilities. I think, I know globally that is a trend, yeah. co-working, especially for entrepreneurs, yeah. the ability to to work uh, in amongst other startups. Um, so I think for commercial property, we're going to see a very big change from traditional office buildings to more co-working offices. Yeah, I think you've summed it up. And I, my, my read of this, and I'd love your thoughts on this as well, is that the, the, the area that's going to suffer the most in terms of property generally as a consequence of what's happened are the CBDs of our major cities. So you, you, we're seeing Correct. an impact on the commercial property in terms of the, uh, the need for as much uh, permanent rental and those sort of flexible hot desking arrangements through co-working, I think you're absolutely right, are going to become flavour of the month because it'll be a good mix between partly working from home and partly being in a, a communal space because we're social animals. But I think the, the apartment glut and you know we, we yeah. talk about two-tier markets the apartment values and the apartment rentals are a very different story to the residential uh, values and and rental demands I'd, I'd love your thoughts on that subject too if i can yeah well look we were quite lucky last year in that when COVID 19 really hit us which was mid-march the academic year had already started so many international students were already here some of them were still at home celebrating the Lunar New Year, but most of them were here. Yeah. But there, Bushy, there is, I know, because that's where I work at uni, there is going to be a huge change this year because we haven't allowed any new international students to come in. Now, interestingly, enrolments aren't down that much because at the moment they're happy to learn online. Okay. All right? So that's, but you've got, in South Australia alone, thousands. In Australia, tens of thousands of international students not here, firstly, not renting property, secondly, not spending their money to eat, not spending their money to recreate or entertain themselves. And in Victoria, in South Australia, international education is our biggest export. Yep. So even though the unis won't suffer much through enrolment fees, the, the uh, knock-on effect is going to be huge. So, And many, many international students rent CBD apartments. Why? Because many of our university campuses are in the CBD. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, no, it's uh, very wise words there, mate. Um, let, let's start uh, jumping into the future in a bit more detail then. What are your predictions on what's likely to happen to property, particularly in the next 12 months, and, and then perhaps your thoughts on beyond there? Well, Bushy, you and I were chatting before you started recording, so far as Adelaide is concerned. We haven't seen the market this good since the early 2000s. Yeah. 
And the early 2000s were very good, not just for Adelaide, but for many capital cities. Yeah. So we had, and, and, and it's very similar. Like it's interesting he, interesting how history repeats itself. <laughs> so 2001 was, a, was as a result, especially in Adelaide and South Australia, of the recession in the 90s yeah. and the state bank collapse, yeah. right? So we had a long period of nothing happening here, economically and property-wise. Yeah. And then we had government stimulus back in the mid-2000s because they introduced the GST on the 1st of July. Yeah. A lot of things stopped, in and in particular property and, more specifically, the construction industry. Yes. So first home buyer grants came out. Yeah. And then they doubled if uh, you were building. And then in Victoria, for example, they increased it again if you were building regionally. Yes. So you see the similarity here, Bushy? Absolutely. We've had a recession, government stimulus, here we go again. <laughs> so I think, I think we're going to do very, very well. Most people think that it, uh, recessions are no good for... Uh, property prices, but I think I spoke about it on a previous show of yours, mate, that yes. I looked at the last, in the 1970s recession, 80s recession, 90s recession, and the GFC, and property prices were solid. And in some cases, they went up exceptionally, but they were for other reasons other than obviously being in a recession. And the same is going to happen here. Yeah. One reason is a lack of supply. Some people are still worried. When, you're, when you are worried, you are less likely to sell your home. Because it's better to stay where you are uh, rather than have the bank look at your finances and maybe they're suggesting that you need to do something that you're not not prepared to do or you can't do. So people are just sitting on their eggs at the moment. They're not selling their properties, which means there is less stock about. Again, simple economics 101, limited supply, even if demand is the same, price is going up. Yeah. And I have seen some phenomenal photos and videos of lineups of people waiting to get into open inspections. I know we have COVID-19 restrictions, I understand that, but the amount of people at open inspections, the amount of people at auctions uh, is just absolutely phenomenal. So this will continue, <coughs> excuse me, this will continue for this year and into 2022, but it's not going to be equal all around Australia. I think, unfortunately, Melbourne is going to have a hard time, mainly because they were, went into a, a second severe lockdown. Yeah. Um, and Sydney also, because Sydney, Victoria and New South Wales are heavily dependent on interstate migration, overseas migration, overseas tourism, international students. Yeah. Well... If we're not moving from state to state as much. Certainly there's nobody coming over, well, hardly anyone coming over here to settle, hardly anyone coming over here to holiday, and we've got no international students. Yeah. So those two markets are going to be impacted greatly, which is going to have a flow-on effect to Sydney and Melbourne property prices and property rents. Yeah. But I think that the cities to do well will be Adelaide and Perth in particular. Yep. Um, I, this is assuming that the current lockdown in Perth is is only going to be short. And by the time your podcast airs, hopefully it'll be all over. Yes. But, you know, there's been a lot of panic about the Chinese not buying our wine and our barley and our crayfish. 
but geez, they're going nuts on our iron ore. Yes. And, and that is, you know, that is helping the Western Australian market hugely, which is having a, a large flow-on effect uh, for property, you know, and, and in particular the rental market. Rents are going through the roof because, again, demand and supply. Yeah. Vacancy rates are almost nil. Just phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely, and it's been a long time coming, and as we know... Yeah. Uh, WA generally is very heavily reliant on the resources sector, but as you say, uh, the only place China can get uh, the quantity of iron ore they need and and will be for at least the next four years, uh, even if they decide to try and open up their own reserves, Perth is extremely well placed to uh, position for it and we're certainly assisting a number of investors to secure properties over there as we speak. And and the key word there, Bushy, is... Quality iron ore. You can get iron ore from many other places, but for some reason, the quality of our, of the iron ore in Western Australia is so good that they can command a premium price. And even if somebody finds a huge deposit of iron ore tomorrow, it doesn't mean they can start digging it out tomorrow. Exactly. And processing it. You know, it takes years for that to happen. So, yeah. Perth in Western Australia have set themselves up very well. Where, where do you think uh, Queensland sits in the mix then, Peter? Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit uncertain about Queensland. One, because it depends so much on tourism. Like, like at the, we have a son that lives in Queensland. Yeah. And we, we want to go and see him. But the issue is, one, we might have an outbreak here or Queensland might have an outbreak, which means we can't go. And that's not so bad. The problem I have is similar to the one that my eldest daughter had when she came back from Brisbane. She happened to be in Brisbane on the second of January, Oot. and and anyone that came, anyone that was in Brisbane on the second of January had to go and get tested and had to self isolate until they got their results. Yeah. Well, I, I can't afford to do that, you know, because I am the in inverted commas the boss of the the property program here at Uni. It would be a bit irresponsible if if I went over and got caught out somehow and either got stuck in Brisbane or I came here and I had to get stuck. So I think, and that's just one person, right? Mm. But there are many, many other people who are thinking along similar lines. So what they're doing is they're holidaying in their own backyard. Yep. So there'll be plenty of Queenslanders holidaying in Queensland, but there certainly won't be any overseas people holidaying in Queensland and there won't be as many interstate people holidaying in Queensland. So, look, I think to answer your original question, Bushy, I think Queensland will be in the top half yep. of the performers. Yeah. Um, but the, I think right at the bottom of the list will be Melbourne and not far behind will be Sydney. Yeah, agreed. And I think the... The, the only uh, contrary view on Queensland is, and again, this is anecdotal, but we're seeing a lot of people who, uh, to escape the uh, perceived imprisonment that a lot suffered in, in Victoria and to some degree Sydney, uh, we, we're seeing uh, a fairly strong push for people to move to uh, the lifestyle uh, or the, the perceived lifestyle benefits of Queensland, particularly in South East no, Queensland. I've heard- I've actually heard that as well. But, again, I'm not sure if that's a temporary move through renting mm. or that's going to be a permanent move. So yep. Yep. we need to wait and see. But Brisbane's a bit like Adelaide where we really haven't done much since 2007. Um, yep. And so there has been a lot of underlying demand yes. that has been wanting to breach the surface yep. and, and it has. 
Yeah, agreed. The uh, outlier uh, continues to be Tasmania to some degree. I'd love your thoughts on, on the Apple Isle because uh, I, I thought Hobart had, had run its race. You know, the old 15-year cycle, I thought it had had its growth spurt and then it would settle down. But uh, last year certainly was contrary to that and maybe that was a bit of escapism again that uh, driven by the fears around COVID. But what's your thoughts around Tasmania? Yeah, look... Hobart and Tasmania had a really good upswing of the property cycle back in 2017, 18 and 19. Yeah. So just from a property cycle perspective, I don't think that that can be sustained or continued by continuing to increase. Yeah. But if we have, like we said before, people migrating from Victoria in particular to settle in Tasmania, then yes, maybe Hobart will have another uh, second kicker. Because you're right, it did perform quite well. Hobart had an almost 7% increase in property prices uh, year on year, uh, which put it up near the top of the uh, performers. Not as good as Darwin, which had 11.5%, and Canberra, which was 8.5%. Um, but it still performed quite well. So we'll have to watch and see what happens there. Mm, and you mentioned the Territory. Uh, having, having lived and worked in the Territory for many years, know that, that part of the world pretty well. But the almost misleading thing about the, about the Territory is it's coming off such a, a small base <laughs> and a low base that uh, it doesn't take much of an increase to, to appear in percentage terms to be... Uh, quite large, and because it doesn't have that critical mass, there's a lot more volatility around what happens up in that neck of the woods. What's what's your thoughts around that? Yeah, look, we had it, it had fifteen percent increase year on year. Yeah, uh, Darwin did, which is you know just phenomenal. Yeah, but you're right; it is coming off a very very low base because I think property prices in Darwin are still below where they were. Uh, 10 years ago. They are. Yeah, spot on. Absolutely spot on. Yeah, no, absolutely dead right there. Mate, um, something I would love to delve on, and you, you touched on this earlier, uh, that the fact that uh, properties historically have uh, generally performed pretty well during and quite resilient during recessionary times. About the only time that we see uh, property values affected is when because uh, I, I believe a big driver of demand and supply is access to credit. Now, we're, yes. we're about to see uh, potentially a fairly significant, what might appear a subtle but in my mind a very significant uh, change that's likely to come into effect on the 1st of March with some legislation changes relaxing the lending laws that, that shifts the onus from the banks proving someone can pay a loan to the borrowers doing it, which, which in a perfect world is exactly where it should be. My guess is that, it, and it'll take a few months for the policy changes to uh, filter through, but it's likely that there'll be uh, greater access to credit and, and greater access to more credit which traditionally tends to put uh, demand pressures on and we see uh, property values rise. What's, what's your read of uh, the impact that that's likely to have? Yeah, look, I agree 100%. I think the two factors that have a big impact on property is the availability of credit and also consumer 
and to a lesser extent, business confidence. Yeah. If money is available and people can borrow that money relatively easily, then all goes well, not just for the property market, but for the whole economy. And so for the first time, if we look at, at uh, Australian consumer confidence, for the first time in eight years, we're over 110. So 100, if we're at 100, that means there's just as many people that think the economy is going to go well as people think that the economy is going to tank. But here we are at 110, which means that there are more people that think the economy is going to go well than the, than the economy is going to tank. And like I said before, that's the first time in seven or eight years that we have hit 110. So that's got to tell you something. Mm, that's a good combination. I wasn't aware of uh, what the current consumer confidence was, and you, and you make a very good point. There's no point having access to money if no one's uh, if they're too scared <laughs> to go and grab it. So yeah. uh, you're absolutely spot on there. And uh, given that quite a few people have war chests as well, I heard a figure quoted the other day that uh, there's about seventy million. Uh, it's going to be billion dollars sitting in people's bank accounts uh, as a result of not being able to travel for their overseas holidays, which which is prime for investment in other things. So uh, you put those combinations together: good good equity and and good borrowing capacity, and uh, property starting to shape up as a as a pretty good model. And if you overlay that with some of the shenanigans that you're hearing around. Uh, the uh, the herd driving equity prices uh, through you know the game shop fiasco and and similar things <laughs> yes. will happen el- elsewhere. The volatility that's going to occur in that sector will make property look uh, pretty attractive, I believe. I agree. I agree, mate. Yeah. Now, uh, mate, Todd, just before we uh, touch on a couple of other things, uh, we've talked about COVID. Uh, we've talked about the uh, international borders as, as risks that will have an impact on the economy and indirectly on property. Are there any other key risks that you think that uh, we need to be looking at that might have an impact moving forward? Look, I, COVID-19 is, is the biggest one, but now the vaccine is being rolled out. Well, not in Australia yet, but... The short experience we've had with the rollout of the vaccine overseas seems like it's going pretty well. So it looks pretty smooth sailing, but the only unknown is our trade, which we've mentioned before, the trade with China. Yeah. Because they're our biggest supplier of international students. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, And we talked about the fact that, you know, they put a tariff on our on our uh, grain, on our wine, on our crayfish. So that that is going to have some impact. How great we will see. I was just reading an article before I came on, um, Bushy, yeah. and uh, we it says one, Australian figures released today showed Australian wine exports for the 12 months to December were 2.89 billion down from 2.99 billion in the year to September 30. In in 20 words or less, we've dropped uh, about 100 million in three months, which is just a 5% difference, but that's over a whole year, right? So we're not we're not comparing quarters. Yeah. We're, we're comparing. So, hmm. you know, five, that's not a huge difference. Sure. And the other thing is 
you know, it's not only Chinese people that drink wine, obviously. All right, so <laughs> if they're going to buy their wine from somewhere else, wherever that somewhere else is, they're not exporting to the countries that, yeah, that they used to. So there are opportunities there. All right, you know, we may not get as good a price or sell as much, but it's not like the end of the world and there are no other markets to sell our wine or our crayfish or our grain yeah. to other than China. Yeah, make a very good point there, mate. Absolutely agree. If you're taking a, a, a long-term view, which is uh, the way you and I operate, then uh, it's just a matter of uh, reshuffling the deck and, and looking at where the opportunities are and, and, and being slightly biased, but knowing how good our wine is when you compare it with other parts of the world, they might, mm. the Chinese might think they're, they're going to get the same thing from somewhere else, but uh, I think the taste buds will, uh, will tell them the story long-term, mate. Very good. Uh, mate, I'd, I'd love to switch into uh, some of the legislative changes that we're starting to see occurring. Uh, you know, and it, it goes hand in hand with the flow on from COVID. There's the housing affordability issue that's been floating around for quite some years now. But I'm very encouraged to see uh, the New South Wales government have the confidence to uh, at least be giving uh, property purchases an option around either paying all the stamp duty up front or uh, sort of virtually amortising it as a, effectively as a land tax for the life of the property. And Victoria has also introduced some sort of temporary uh, reductions in stamp duty. What, what's your read of uh, you know, what these changes may do to property generally, uh, both in terms of the, the short, medium and long-term view? Yeah, so uh, ACT was the pioneer here because they're already well underway with the transition from stamp duty to an annual land tax or land levy. Yep. And, and New South Wales, which is a big, our biggest state, the most popular state, as you rightly say, is looking to do the same thing. That's certainly that's certainly going to help because, Bushy, I break down the ability to buy a house and 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 own a house into two. One is housing attainability, which is which is the ability to save a deposit. And the other one is housing affordability, which is the ability to continue to maintain to pay the mortgage. Yes. Now, I'm contrary to most property academics, most many property commentators. If we just look at housing affordability, that is the ability to pay off a mortgage, it is actually easier today than it was, say, back in 1990. No question. And the and the main reason is because interest rates are so low. Yeah. That is the main reason. Yeah. So it, I think it's unfair to, to compare housing affordability and only contrast income and house prices. Yep. I mean, one of the reasons we invest in property is because property goes up at a greater rate than inflation. Yeah. So what, of course, you are going to see in most places around the world, property prices growing faster than wages. Yeah. But if we were only paying outright cash to buy a house, then I would say, well, we don't need to consider the mortgage component. Yeah. But, you know, 99.9% .9 of us have to take out a mortgage to buy a property. Yeah. So, therefore, the interest rate plays a critical role in how affordable housing is. So, in my opinion, if we, if we look at housing affordability as the capacity to pay your mortgage... You're much better off today than you were in the past. But where people are worse off is the ability 
to save a deposit to buy the house. So I'm not going to guess how old you are, Bushy, but I reckon you and I are a similar era. Yep, we are. Right? Yep. Now, we had, you may remember, like we couldn't buy a place with a 5% deposit. No. It needs to be a 20 to 25% deposit. Yep. But our home owner grants were relatively much more generous back in the 80s yep. than they were today. Yes. See, back in the 80s, we could get up to $5,000. Yeah. Right? Now, you fast track 40 years and it's 15000 It's only gone up three times when property prices have gone up much more than that and so have many other goods and services. Yeah. So it's... I understand that it might be harder for young people to save a deposit to get into the housing market, but so far as a mortgage is concerned, if you do your numbers, you will see that your mortgage repayment, including principal and interest, in most cases, is less than the rent that you would pay. Absolutely right. And you, and the other very important point that you make there, I think, and, and I 100% agree with you, uh, even as an investor, uh, you don't have to work too hard to create a positive cash flow property now uh, as a result of the cost of money being so low. So the affordability issue, and I, and I, it's like talking to my brother when I talk to you, Peter. I ex- <laughs> agree exactly with your thoughts around what true affordability is. But And I love your term attainability because the biggest hurdle to get people into property, whether it be owner-occupied or investor, is the size of the deposit. And it's it's the money you can't borrow against that that's the biggest hurdle. So stamp duty varies around the country, but it's anywhere between 4 to 6% uh, on top of the purchase price. Uh, well, that's a big lump of deposit that people have got to find. Now, if governments are waking up to the smarts of uh, getting that money over longer term rather than a big lump, then it's doing two things. It's reducing that hurdle... But it's also potentially encouraging more uh, property turnover because if it's not such a big impact to get in and get out, the turnover costs are lower, then it's, it's likely to create uh, a little bit more flexibility in that. So uh, ultimately, I think it's going to be good all round. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, you know, I, I agree. The one thing that worries me about being easier to buy and sell is we might get speculators back in the market. And we can see what speculators do to the stock market. Um, Mm. One of the things that stops people from buying property and speculating on it, like maybe renovating and then selling, is the huge cost to get in and out. Now, I don't don't necessarily agree with that because, again, you and I might remember, Bushy, when the GST came in, wasn't stamp duty supposed to go out? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's exactly right. (laughs) And it's still here. So, look, I I think it it would be great if um, stamp duty was minimised for first-home buyers at least because the hardest property to buy is your first one. Yeah. Whether you're an owner, occupier or investor, the hardest property to buy is the first one. So give people a break, especially those looking to buy their first home, so far as stamp duty is concerned, and then that'll make it a lot easier for people to get in into the property ownership market and off the rental wheel. Yeah, yeah, very wise words as usual. Mate, uh, around the property scenario, any any final thoughts and words on what the long-term trajectory uh, is and the impact that it's going to have on, on economy and lifestyles as we move forward? Yeah, look, I, th- I think we can forget about 
in this very low inflation and interest rate environment, we can forget about property prices doubling every 10 years. Yep. It'll be more like doubling every 15 years. Yep. Um, and I think if you were looking to buy property to make a profit, a short-term profit in particular, which we all should have bought last year, but, you know, we're all geniuses in hindsight, <laughs> but you're better off buying this year because I can guarantee you next year property prices will be higher than they are this year, and in some places they will be significantly higher. Yeah, yeah, 100% agree, and, and great to uh, hear someone else uh, saying exactly the same thing, mate. That's uh, uh, very good thoughts. Now, I'm going to sort of switch switch lanes a little bit back into something a little bit more personal, but uh, I call it the bushfire round, which are five very quick questions that uh, I'd like to get you to share your words of wisdom on. Mate, uh, what's your favourite quote and why? The value in real estate is in the land. Yeah. You make, you make your money because the when you buy a property, which is made up of two components, land and building, it's the land that appreciates in value because the building depreciates in value. As it gets older, it is worth less. Yeah, brilliantly said. Uh, back on the book front, uh, the top book you'd recommend and why, Let, let's, let's talk a little bit on that subject about your new book that's coming out. What's it called and uh, when can they get their hands <laughs> on it? And then apart from your words of wisdom, any other book you suggest the readers get their hands on? That's a very good question. What is the book title? I'm not sure yet, Bushy, because <laughs> I'm actually I'm writing the book with Margaret Lomas. Do you know Margaret? I do. Yeah. Well, Margaret's doing a little development down in Christie's Beach, a South Australian beachside suburb. Yeah. And so she's documenting it like a diary, and then I'm coming in, adding so-called expert tips on what went well, what didn't go so well, and and tips for. Um, for people that want to get in. So we we haven't, even though we've almost finished the book, we haven't come up with the title yet, but it should be out uh, mid-year. Yep. Um, but um, uh, the, top, the best book that I have read and would highly recommend is a book called Making Money Made Simple by Noel Whitaker. Yes, absolutely. Noel has written many, many great money books. Noel is based in Brisbane. I had the great pleasure of, I've, I've met Noel a few times. He's a wonderful man. He's over 70 and he's still going strong. But it's exactly like the book title, Making Money Made Simple. He, he explains it in simple terms. He's got another one called Making Retirement Made Simple, which I need to buy soon, I think. Bushy? Um, <laughs> you and me both. But, you know, he, have a look at a lot of his books. And he's got books for young ones too, not just for us oldies. But he's got books for kids too. He's a great author. He's an awesome author. I've got a number of his books on the shelf behind me as we speak, and and mm -hmm. one of them actually talks about the uh, tax treatment of investment property. So investors that are listening, he's written a brilliant book that breaks it down into very simple and easy to understand terms, but really gives you the juice on exactly how you need to be structuring things to uh, look after yourself and and in, improve that affordability piece. Yeah. Uh, as an investor. No, great great thoughts there. Uh, this question is a bit left field, but most Australians still believe they pay too much tax. What's the top legal thing that you've done to minimise the tax you pay, Peter? Setting up family trusts. Yeah. They're not as good now with uh, land tax, but with many other aspects of income tax, 
uh, and the fact the fact that I also have four kids um, <laughs> where I can distribute income has worked very well for me. Yeah, brilliant. Now, back on the uh, investment topic, uh, what's both the worst and the best piece of investment advice that you've ever received? Uh, the best would be to buy property. Um, obviously, the right type of property in the right street, in the right suburb. Um, the worst piece of advice I received was to buy some speculative stocks, which are worth much, much less than what I paid for them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I still hold on to them because I, like many humans, I don't want to realise a loss <laughs> or admit that I made a loss. So, you know, one day they'll go up. Probably yep. never, but you never. Yeah, yeah. That's not, hey, that's not to say that the stock market is a bad place to be in, but I just took my so-called advice from the wrong person. <laughs> no, good call. Uh, final exercises back on the, the sort of habits and rituals that uh, you adopt on an almost daily basis. Uh, what's, a, what's one of those that you believe that has contributed most to your success today? I'm always keen to improve my knowledge, Pushy. So whether it's reading a short article, even enrolling in a course. You know, like I, I, I teach property at university, but it doesn't mean that I know absolutely everything about every aspect of property. So I'm, I'm keen to know more. And the, the property environment is changing. You know, back when, when my dad uh, made some good money in property, the market was very different. Property prices used to go up significantly every year. We had a huge amount of overseas migrants coming to settle in Australia but that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, people are less likely today to want to want or own their own home as it was in the past. So basically, I'm, I'm keen to educate myself. Yeah, and, and I think the uh, emphasising one of the key points there to keep educating yourself because it's not static. Yeah. That's the, no, that's no. the dynamic. Yeah, exactly. And that's the exciting piece for me. I, you know, if I mm. haven't learned something every day, then uh, I'm wondering what I've done wrong. So uh, love, love your thoughts around that. Mate, uh, final question, uh, and it's a big question. If I gave you a microphone that spoke to every single one of the 7.7 .7 billion people that are currently alive in the world, and I gave you one minute to talk, what would you say? Well, it won't take me a minute to say it, but basically the theme is be good to others, be good to yourself. Yeah. Treat others as you would like to be treated, but also be good to yourself, eat the right things, exercise, you know, uh, try and have good relationships with your family and your friends. Be good to others, be good to yourself. Yeah, love it, mate. It's uh, timeless advice, uh, but it's amazing how many people don't do that. Uh, so very good thoughts there. Mate, uh, I know that you've got a, um, a great new property development course coming out. Let's talk a little bit about that uh, for those listeners that uh, can see the merit in getting involved in that space. Sure. So I only just decided to do it on the, uh, on the weekend because the planning system here in South Australia is changing, so I see some good opportunities. Mm. But the property development workshop, it, it's not a university course. There's no test assignments or exams but it's there to help teach people how to make money from small-scale residential development. So buying a property and building two or three or four on it, that, that's what it's all about. And I try and keep, keep it very practical. So a significant part of the first day is a field trip. So we go out and have a look at either potential development sites 
or sites that have been developed and we look at what makes a good development site, what doesn't make a good development site, what you have to be careful of, you know, significant trees, regulated trees, where's the stoby pole, where, where are the overhead lines, is there a slope, do we need retaining walls? Um, and, and it's not just me. So we have town planning experts, finance, accountants, uh, builders. So we try and cover the whole gamut um, and it, it, it runs for just over 20 hours, over two days and two weeknights. Um, I've run them before when I used to work at TAFE and they were very popular there. Mm. And I can see that the market is, market is really hot now, uh, that it's also an opportune time to not only edu to educate people how to make money, but I think more importantly, Bushy, how to educate them not to lose money. Because if you lose money in property development, mate, you're losing a lot of money. Big money. Exactly big right. Big you be, and, and you've got an architectural background and project management background, so you know you can, you've seen when things go wrong. Absolutely, and it and yeah. it, it uh, can happen very easily. So the, the yeah. risk management side of that equation is absolutely imperative. And I I love the fact that you're getting your hands dirty, getting out there and assessing sites and looking at the real nitty gritty things that what might appear to be small things that you don't think of when you're looking at it on paper. But if you're out there on site and that's that's Stoby Pole, and we've got to look at those crossovers and uh, you know that, where's that easement and what impact does that have and is the yeah. actual boundary on the the fence on the boundary or is yeah. it not? All yeah. of those things can have a massive impact on the the end result. So uh, for those listeners who have an interest in property development, particularly the small scale residential stuff, which is you know if you're going to get into it, then I'd I'd crawl before you run. Mm -hmm. And uh, spending some time with you and other experts in that space to get a full full knowledge of it before they uh, step out would be absolutely uh, a fundamental first step, mate. So, look, uh, always enjoy your input. Uh, I'm going to get you back on again uh, when it suits you to do a deeper dive on property development, given your expertise in that area and my, my interest in that as well. So uh, really appreciate you uh, generously giving to the Get Invested audience again, Peter, and, and look forward to talking to you again soon. Pleasure. Look, in the meantime, Bushy, if people want, if I've got it, I'm not very good with the IT, but I do have a YouTube channel where I have, I have actually documented on video my last development that I did at Port Nalunga South, where we interview a lot of the major players, like the accountant and the architect and the building designer and the builder and, and so on. So if people just want to get an overview of what it's all about, they can have a look at that. So if they Google Pete Kalizos or the property professor, I'm sure they will find it. Brilliant, great suggestion. And again, it's a, it's a hands-on exercise with someone who has the overall knowledge that can pull that whole thing together. So uh, very appreciative of your generosity again, mate, and looking forward to continuing to talk to you. Keep up the great work with the Property Investment Professionals of Australia. Uh, you know, I always like to say that if you're going to get involved in property, make sure that you're talking to uh, someone who's on board with Pippa, uh, so that there's Dead a level right, of mate. independence. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, make sure you're asking that question of anyone that's in your property team. But in the meantime, mate, uh, thanks again, and I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you very much, Richie. Always a pleasure to chat. Thanks, Peter. Well, freedom fighters. How good was that? To get a summary of all this investment gold in the show notes, just email me on hello at khgroup.com.au. That's H-E-L-L-O -L at khgroup.com.au. 
or check us out at www.bushymartin.com.au forward slash get invested. I look forward to joining you next week for another episode of the Get Invested podcast. So thanks for listening. And as always, dream as if you live forever and live as if you die forever.